Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. It's V, the Grill Economist, coming to you live with my main man, CJ. And we have with us the man who needs no introduction, the one and only prolific Harley Schlanger. You can find Harley over at LaRoucheOrganization.com, LaRoucheOrganization.com, as well as the SchillerInstitute.com as well. And with that being said, Harley, let's jump into it. There's lots to talk about. I know you have an awesome article out. Let's get into it, Harley. Well, I thought it was important to get the deeper story out, which is yes. something that we picked up yesterday from some people in intelligence late in the day. They were commenting on how it was that the British, early in the morning on Thursday, put out this definitive report that they expected an act of terrorism at the uh, Hamid Karzai <laughs> International Airport. Is it because Hafiz... <laughs> Hafiz uh, Muhammad Khan, the leader of ISIS-K, happens to be a, an MI6 asset. <laughs> that wouldn't be anything of it, right? Well, <laughs> that's certainly something to look at, whether he is or not. We do know that much of the act of terror, acts of terror in the world were either cells that were to some extent supported and backed by Western intelligence agencies, Correct. Uh, including especially in Afghanistan. But also that there are times where intelligence agencies don't necessarily share the, the internet traffic and the cyber traffic they're picking up. And then afterwards they say, oh, whoops, we missed it. So given, I, I don't know if, if people are aware of this, but the British press has been in an absolute horrific freak out over Biden's rejection of Boris Johnson and the G7 telling Biden that he's got to stay in Afghanistan. Now, Tony Blair, of course, led the charge. Blair made the statement where he said that it is idiocy to say that there are such things as never ending wars. His actual quote was, um, it's right here. We didn't need to do it. We chose to do it. We did it in obedience to an imbecilic political slogan about ending the forever wars. Now, he wasn't just talking about Biden in that, because Trump was the one who first said we have to end these never-ending wars right. based on his recognition that the American people wanted to get out of these wars. Now, then the more important part of Blair's statement, and remember, Blair was the one who got us into Iraq in the first place with the many reports of weapons of mass destruction in the hands of, of Saddam Hussein. Mm. Blair went on to say that not consulting the British poses the risk of Britain being relegated to the second division of global powers. They are the second division of global powers. Well, of course they are, except <laughs> for their ability to manipulate the United States. Now, yeah. here's where it gets really interesting. 
in the observer a guy named andrew ronsley who's one of their editors uh said that what now has been shown to be global britain that is the boris johnson uh reorganization of the british empire is impotent and friendless he said mr johnson's capacity to influence mr biden was less than that of the president's dog and then he went on to say that the problem is the United Kingdom has, quote, lots of vital interests around the globe, but not the means to safeguard them by itself, unquote. And just adding to that, Theresa May in the parliament said, where is global Britain on the streets of Kabul? Now, what does Blair mean? What does this guy Ronsley and, and uh, May mean? Essentially, their idea is that the British empire is eternal and has to be protected and defended to the last American. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've had presidents who were conducted into the inner circle of British intelligence, especially uh, Jimmy Carter, who wasn't really himself there, but he had Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was key to that. You had a bunch of traitors around Ronald Reagan, including George Herbert Walker Bush, who himself was a, a, a very much attuned to British uh, initiatives. In fact, remember, after Saddam invaded Kuwait, Bush initially was somewhat frozen, and Margaret Thatcher said, I had to stiffen his spine. Well, maybe that's the only thing Thatcher could stiffen on Bush. But shortly <laughs> after she said that, Bush went into Iraq. Now, similarly, if you look at the George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and others, uh, they've been on a British strategy since 9-11. And there's a lot of evidence that the British and the Saudis and even the Israelis played a leading role in 9-11, along with networks in the U.S. intelligence community who covered that up. So when you look at what happened at the Karzai International Airport uh, yesterday, there's every reason to suspect that it could have been a British warning to the United States that if you abandon our interests, you will pay a price. So I, I raised that in this article I wrote. I, I raised it in my uh, update today because I think it's important that, you know, when, when Biden gets something right, and, and look, he screwed up the withdrawal. There's no question about that. But he was absolutely right to withdraw. It could have been done better, obviously, but it was right for us to get out of there. How many more years do we need to have Americans die and, and money spent before we decide that it was a mistake? So I, I think the lesson here is that we that when Biden stood up to the G7, and in particular to NATO and to Boris Johnson, the Brits didn't like it one bit. In fact, one of the uh, former commanders of British troops in Afghanistan, Colonel Richard Kemp, said Biden shouldn't be impeached. He should be court-martialed for betraying the USA and the US armed forces. And of course you have Nikki Haley out there saying Biden should resign. Uh, Liz Cheney calling for his impeachment. Of course, she has two sides to this. One is she's, she's always been anti-Trump. Right. But the other part of it is that her father was one of the authors of the original decision to launch these forever wars on behalf of companies like Halliburton and Exxon and, and the global banksters. Right. So it, this is in a sense a perfect storm for the British oligarchy. How do they get out of it? Well, 
the, one of the tools they have is uh, false flag operations, launching terror operations, and possibly uh, doing something to attack the dollar, uh, which wouldn't be beyond their capabilities. Yeah. You know something, it's it, 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 it's interesting, and it is a colossal blunder in the way things were done and the way things were handled. Um, what is interesting is this, that you, you, you made a very valid point. Those who are the most vocal right now of calling for the impeachment and removal of Biden are also the very architects of this war. They're the ones who are the most, they're fomenting at the mouth. They could, uh, they, th there's no doubt they want somebody more pliable, uh, perhaps in the White House. Maybe they want somebody who's more keen to do their bidding in the White House, like Harris, know, like Harris. And which is funny because yesterday we know that Harris bowed before the shrine of, of John McCain, but not noticing, but not realizing because she says an idiot and those who handle her <laughs> are morons. Is that shrine was to the men who shot down John McCain. <laughs> yeah, I know. An idiot, an absolute idiot. Well, so, you know, the other thing, the other thing is you get people like Lindsey Graham and Nikki Haley who are oh, trying God. to capture the the Trump base. Yeah. And they're calling for resignation or uh, Graham said he's for impeachment. I mean, Haley's not too far behind. We all like to make fun of Harris, right? You know, Harris heels over Harris. We we yeah. we like to call it, right? Haley, it's, it's heels over Haley as well. Yeah. We have another Indian lady who's, uh, you know, reached her way to the top doing you know what. Yeah. And, it's, and got caught in a car with a staffer. Well, that's that's the for some people still that's the way up. But if it if it's the man who's doing it, it's uh, never again. <laughs> they, they get out. Well, oh, yeah. yeah let, let, just to look at this thing again, though. I find it somewhat, uh, I, I don't know exactly what term to use, but for Trump to now turn on his own policy and to say that he could have done it better, uh, that it was wrong to do it this way. Well, Pompeo is saying he has no uh, blame for this. Uh, it was interesting. Bolton came out and said, Pompeo can't get out of this. Pompeo did the negotiations signed the agreement on February 20th uh, or February 2020. And it was Pompeo and Trump who were planning on bringing the Taliban to Camp David for a signing ceremony, which Trump backed away from when he caught hell from some of his uh, supporters in the Congress. But you know, this is the war party. And I think Trump is showing the lack of spine which kept him from pulling the troops out, despite saying repeatedly for four years, we have to get out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Well, uh, Harley, it's amazing that things are devolving very quickly there. What happens in that in your estimation? Well, I think the deadline's gonna come on the 31st. The question we're gonna find out in the next couple of days whether the Taliban is really willing to be reasonable and negotiate or whether they're going to revert to their old ways. I think in some areas where there's not a, a central control over them, we are seeing some revenge murders and things of that sort. But we're also seeing Taliban leaders talking to the Russians, the Pakistanis, the Chinese, uh, and to the Americans. The, one of the leaders of uh, 
the Taliban, who actually was held in a Pakistani prison for eight years, uh, had a meeting with the uh, head of the CIA, William Burns. And U.S. military officials are saying the Taliban is providing some security at the airport. So there's a lot at stake here because Afghanistan is a failed state. It is heading toward a, a catastrophe, a food crisis. They have no funds. The U.S. Uh, Janet Yellen decided to freeze the $8 billion they have in U.S. banks. Uh, the World Bank and the IMF are not make, extending them the special drawing rights that were promised to them. So there's going to be a, a, a blow up inside Afghanistan. So unless we want to see a worsening of the situation there in which groups like this Al-Qaeda and ISIS force that did the bombing get more uh, ability to act, uh, if we don't want to see that, we have to help the government there stabilize the situation. Now, the problem is the U.S. situation is so insane right now. As we're talking now, there's a virtual summit going on in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, the Federal Reserve is presenting their new policy, which is the same old policy, more quantitative easing. And then sometime, maybe September, maybe October, maybe November, maybe when the Messiah gets here, they're going to do some tapering. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm holding my breath for the they're going to raise interest rates by uh, by 25 basis points, Harley. <laughs> yeah, and what's going to happen then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the bubble pops. Exactly correct. And this is what this is the whole thing, folks. The, the, this is what people don't understand is that the patient is terminal. There, there's no way the Fed, like we are the patient, we're in hospice, and the Fed is administering palliative care in the form of quantitative easing in the form of uh, mortgage-backed securities, in the form of TARP, in the form of ZERP, in the form of, I mean, you name it, right? They're doing all this palliative care. The patient is terminal. We're already dead. So any sort of pullback against this palliative care called quantitative easing is going to hasten the death of the, of the patient. It's going to implode the market. You can't do it. Well, what, what my friend Roger Stone said is it's like uh, pumping blood into the patient after they're dead. Yep, exactly. That's all it is. Oh, we got a pulse. Are you sure it's a pulse? Uh, maybe. Maybe it's a nerve. I'm not sure, but it could be a pulse. Let's just call it a pulse. That's <laughs> exactly what it is, Harley. Well, exactly and then, then you've got this in the hands of people like Larry Fink of BlackRock, Mark Carney, uh, people who have already proven to They be have our best interest in heart, Harley. They have our, our best interest in heart. Yeah, that's for sure. But this is, and I, my view on this is that they're going to push this to a crisis point, possibly even to chaos, to overcome the resistance to the Great Reset, because there is tremendous resistance to the Great Reset. Uh, it's from not just from smaller countries and developing sector countries. It's from China. It's from Russia. It's from a lot of bankers in the United States who realize that if you give more power to the too big to fail banks to use the central banks to squeeze out every last ounce of credit from the overall system into the customers of the too big to fail banks, you're going to have even more casualties throughout the, the heart of what is called red America. You know, you look in the farm sector, you look in the industrial sector, uh, they're starved for credit. And you add on top of that what's happened with the COVID, with the lockdowns, 
And we can see that much of the economy is never coming back. Now, when I say never, I'm saying if Jerome Powell, Janet Yellen, uh, Bernanke, uh, people like um, Christine Lagarde of the European Central Bank, if they have their way, the rest of the real physical economy and the entrepreneurial system will never come back. And it will be replaced by a global central bankers dictatorship, which will extend credit into the bubble. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's a, an opportunity here to have a reset, both on the strategic question and on the fight against neoliberal economics. I agree exactly. You know, it, it, it's all, all this talk at this point. Everything that's being done is all—it's all theater. And I think uh, the American people are starting to grasp. I don't know to what extent, but they're starting to grasp the ineptitude of those who do our economic plannings, the ineptitude of those who create the monetary policy, the ineptitude of those who go into these insane foreign policy blunders. And there's and and while here at home things are being rent apart. Things are being torn apart. Economies are, are at, at local and state uh, governments are, are, you know, at local state levels, excuse me, are starting to, to rupture. You know, I mean, earlier in the, in the show, Harley, we talked about um, um, the comorbidities that were put out there. The latest study in comorbidity showed that people that are dying from this uh, situation that, that's spreading throughout the world is, you know, they have about f- close to four or, or, or even more than four comorbidities, right? We've also found out the... Um, the, uh, uh, the the fatality rate is still abysmally low, right? But yet, look at what Western leaders are doing. Look at what New Zealand is doing. Look at what Australia is doing. Look what Canada is about to do starting next month. And these uh, these these things that they're doing is creating all sorts of tyrannical machinations happening within our own leadership in this country. Harley, it's it's insane. And what they're doing wrong is they're misidentifying, not surprisingly, what the real problem is. The real problem is you have comorbidities because a lot of people don't have the the money for regular health care checkups. They can't eat properly because they they have so little uh, disposable income. They live on the edge, uh, the Eviction moratoriums coming up. We're going to see millions of people losing their their places to live, and then on top of that, we turned the the what was once an highly efficient public health system with uh, public hospitals, charity hospitals, and private hospitals working together to provide a standard of health care that was very high. That's been lost because of the privatization policy that was pushed ahead by Obamacare, the insurance companies, and big pharma. So this is another perfect storm, you know, bad uh, policy toward individual health care, bad policy toward national health care. And I don't mean uh, the nationwide health care system. I mean the ability to get care to people who need it. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Harley, anything else that's, uh, that's on your radar screen? Well, one other thing that I I brought up the other day, which I think is important for us to look at, is something in in our own neighborhood in the world, what's happening in Haiti, Mm. uh, where you had this earthquake uh, on August 14th, uh, at least 22 to 2,500 people dead, hundreds of thousands needing emergency care. And, you know, you look at this, there was an earthquake there 10 years ago. And you remember Bush and uh, Clinton were going to 
do all this stuff to help the people and absolutely get equipment. I mean, part of the problem is that these earthquakes are hitting in areas that are somewhat remote and not ex easily accessible to uh, help. But the help that's needed there, we're spending trillions on wars. And for a few tens of millions, we could upgrade the transport system in Haiti, which would make an enormous difference when there's a, a, a natural disaster like this. The fact that we don't care about what happens to people in Haiti shows that the, the idea that, well, you know, we're looking out for the interests of everyone in the world. We're not. No, and we're not. One of the special things about Haiti is that you had the first slave rebellion in the Western Hemisphere against the slave trade in Haiti. And I, I wish people who are parading around under the Black Lives Matter flag would realize that the people of Haiti are mostly black and there's no attention being given to the catastrophic conditions that they're living in. So well, the, U the U.S. doesn't care, Harley, because, look, there's, there's obviously not any... Uh, a significant amount of natural resources there, and they don't have any opium. So why why go there? You know. <laughs> well, it's, could, it's a terrible it environment to grow cocoa They could do what they did in the Cayman Islands: set up some uh, office buildings with hundreds of banks and launder drug money through there. You know what? You need to stop saying that out loud. You're giving them ideas. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I think it's important to to bring this up because you have. People who, on the one side, the Black Lives Matter movement, which pays no attention to the fact that there are millions starving in Africa, that the situation in Haiti is a disaster. But you also have so many people who are virtuous pro-life advocates in the United States who turn their back on these kinds of catastrophes. When we're not talking about billions and tens of billions of dollars, you know, the, the head of the World Food Organization said for $300 million, we could... Uh, do a lot to stop the starvation going on in Eastern Africa. Yeah. So we spend more than that per week in propping up dictators and, and running these wars. So you know, this is where we, we have to change our priorities. And I, I think the American people, if they knew what was going on in these situations, knew the desperation and also knew that these countries uh, have potential. I mean, there are a lot of people from Haiti who are gainfully employed doing good work in the United States. Yes. Why don't we give them the opportunity to do that in their homeland? Yeah, agreed. Very well said. Harley, thank you so much for coming on with us. And folks, again, go to, go to the LaRoucheOrganization.com, LaRoucheOrganization.com, as well as the SchillerInstitute.com. Great article there by Harley. Uh, was the British involved in the bombing? And actually, it's Harley. It's, uh, it's Kabul Airport. You have. I know. I, I made a mistake. I'm trying to get it corrected. <laughs> yeah. Great article there that spells out everything that has been happening behind the scenes. Be careful for the cheerleading of the bumbling of the, of the removal of the bumbling crash test dummy in the White House because you can get something far, far worse. Maybe his incompetence is a saving grace in some yeah. regard. <laughs> he could literally be the Jacques Clougeau of the West, folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, just bumbling his way, messing up. Um, you gotta, I mean, the, the, the permanent bureaucracy is absolutely irate with this man, so... Uh, you know, maybe his bumbling and stumbling is uh, working to our benefit. <laughs> well, and, and the British also, if you get a chance to look at my article, it'll be posted in a couple of days. If you get a chance to look at it, you'll you'll see 
the absolute hysteria coming from Whitehall and, and the city of London. Nice. Yep. Yep. Absolutely right. Folks, thank you so much for listening in again. Once again, subscribe, like, comment, and share. Make sure you share this broadcast with your friends and family. And again, check out Harley's websites uh, as well as uh, uh, re reach him directly via email. The links will be in the uh, description box. And with that being said, CJ, take it away.